Welcome to Nobody Told Me That, your source for candid business talk and stories. Your host is speaker and author Teresa Duncan. Sit back, buckle up, and hang on. Welcome to another episode of Nobody Told Me That. I am so like just stinking excited today because I have somebody on who is just a longtime friend of mine and quite frankly, one of the most fun people that I know. Susan Gunn of Susan Gunn Solutions is on. Hey, Susan. Hey. See, look how funny she is already. Okay, so the thing about Susan that you should know, there's a couple things that you should know. So first of all, like she's this financial guru. She knows QuickBooks. She knows accounting. She knows fraud, embezzlement, all this kind of stuff. But she's also got a side of her that can talk to you about ethics, can talk to you about caregiving, which is kind of out of left field. But we'll talk about that towards the end because it's something she's passionate about. But I met Susan through, I think, ADMC, which is the Academy of Dental Management Consultants. And she was just one of those people that when you asked her a question about finances, she had the answer. She didn't have to think about it. It was like immediate. And I was like, wow, this girl knows her stuff. And then I got to know her and I realized, you know what? I just want to get to know her. So Susan is going to be sharing her, just her wisdom and her wit with us. I just can't say enough good things about her. So Susan, how's that for a lead-in right there to build you up? Well, it was a lot better than what I was thinking it could be, so. <laughs> well, I have to hold the uh, the personal stories, you know, because we're trying to be, like, professional and stuff oh, here. okay, okay. <laughs> we, right. do have a lot, we do have a lot of stories. And, and one thing you should know personally about Susan is that, you know, my husband is also a certified fraud examiner. Susan is a certified fraud examiner. So when those two get together, they really just love talking. Actually, I think they get along better than Norman and I get along. So I don't think so. Susan, you're going to steal my man, I think, one day. (laughs) Well, he is my boyfriend, but oh, I wasn't supposed to say that. (laughs) So let's jump into it. You have this book that is called Money In, Money Out. It was, and just disclosure, I did write the foreword for it only because I actually made her let me write the foreword for it because I knew this book was going to be something that office managers wanted to read. It's all about how to handle finances in your, in your office. And it's basically one of those books that you should read before you get deep into running the practice, you know, cause it really is all foundational. But if you're running the practice and you've been doing it a while, it's really good to go back and revisit your system. So did you write it intended for a new dentist or was, was it pretty much across the board? Here's how you should make sure things are done. So the reason I wrote it is kind of twofold. The first one is there's so many different accounting systems now that people are using. QuickBooks Online has become more and more of an option for dental practices. And I still do not recommend that as an option for a dental practices. Mm -hmm. So um, that was the first one. They're not going to buy the getting the most out of QuickBooks in your practice that I did write for the desktop version. So I needed something to put in their hands so that they would have the business systems and procedures that they need to implement anyway. But then Mm -hmm. the second thing is I'm not going to write a book on embezzlement. At least I don't think I don't have plans for that right now because I don't want to get that into the hands of people that would misuse it. And so there still needs to be systems and procedures that need to be in place so that that flow is easy organized 
as well as overseen easily. So that's why I wrote it. Well, and and so it goes over. Let me just give a couple, um, just a couple of the chapters, just so that you guys get a you know get a feel of what it's about. One's establishing financial flow and the software. The software is really funny though. Uh, well, let me get back to it because I kind of I want to go through these. The financial institutions, you know, working with your bank, merchant card services, accountability, like end of day, end of week, end of month, end of year, which is something I get asked about a ton. So it's really nice now to have something to just say, here, read. You do go over insurance. You go over how to handle paying your employees the best with the accounting software in mind, CPAs, tax, and and then you end with ethics, which is you know, we can get into that in a little bit. I, I crack up though, because you were very restrained in your non-endorsement of QuickBooks Online. You know, I've, I've heard just horror stories of people going online and then trying to go back to the old way. And it apparently you can't do that very well or at all, right? Right. No, they've, they've refined it. They've tried to fix the problems. What's funny to me is that it so easily converts from the QuickBook desktop version to online, but doesn't mm-hmm. easily convert from the online version to the desktop version. And so, you know, one benefits into it, the other one doesn't. I don't really know why that is, but they've gotten better at it. And so that's mm-hmm. one of the reasons I don't recommend it. There's a lot of differences, though, between the QuickBooks online version. If anyone is ever questioning or they're encouraged to convert to QuickBooks Online, they need to read my blog post on my website first before mm-hmm. they get to that, or they can read the book. Um, I, put right. more, I put actually more information in the book than I did the blog post. You actually have a lot of um, free resources within the book. You have like a hidden page. I that do. Yeah, it's got some resources, so it's cool. But for my regular listeners, don't zone out. We're not going to all talk about QuickBooks, so don't don't freak out. Don't zone <laughs> out here. Got a lot more going on. I know sometimes QuickBooks is people are like, "Well, I don't do it," so they just kind of tune tune out. Um, one question that I get a lot in my classes is, "I know that you're giving me all these reports. You're talking to me about all this stuff that I should be tracking, but my dentist doesn't give me access to the bank account. I don't do any of the stuff that you're talking about." So I know you have lots of examples, but can you give me a good, a a scenario where it's good for the office manager to have access to the bank account and in what capacity? And then the reasons why a a manager maybe shouldn't have full access to the bank account. A lot of banks now can give limited access to the bank accounts. That's really the bigger banks. Now the smaller banks, yeah, not so much. In fact, Mm -hmm. some small banks don't even have statements online or being able to view your transactions online. So, you know, a bank is not all created equally across the board, but the larger banks are having limited access. I'm okay with that. If they can get limited access, for instance, the best scenario would be you have EFT insurance payments hitting the bank at all different times of the week. And so if they had access to being able to see the deposits that were going into the bank, to be able to compare them with what's in the practice software, that would be amazing. It is really hard to do insurance payments online oh, yeah. without access to the bank. I mean, without those reports. And I have, you know, insurance coordinators I train that are, they say, I'm waiting for the for the reports from the bank, I've got, I'm ready to reconcile. I'm ready to do this. And, you know, if you have a doctor who's slow on giving you stuff, forget it. 
Um, or, you know, worst case scenario, they have to get in touch with the accountant. I know one girl is like, I have to wait for the accountant to send me the reports. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like what, how long is it taking you to reconcile? And she's like, it takes two days to reconcile a week because she's gone, you know, off of one at a time. And I know we'll talk about that. Cause that's, that's like the big issue that I'm hearing a lot. So, so what about when they should not have access? You know, I don't think anything else they need, they don't really need to have access for payments if they're not doing any payments for the practice. They don't need access to that. Like the bookkeeping stuff, like if they're not doing the bookkeeping. Yeah, if they're not doing the bookkeeping, the accounting. So okay. that part of and it. If, if a manager's doing bookkeeping, do you think that, I mean, it seems to me like that's not really a good use of her time. Right. Yeah, the only time that I would really that I see that it's really necessary is if the um, deposits are to make sure that the deposits are hitting the bank right. That's the big because EFTs are so stinking confusing now. I've actually been telling my audiences I'd like to go back to paper check days. I know that we get them less or or later than we would normally. But the EFT has caused a lot of confusion in the marketplace right now. Yeah, actually, I have a lot of people in classes. It's pretty split. A lot of people are actually getting off of EFTs yeah. um, because because of the confusion, which is really sad because, you know, I'm all about cash flow. So are you. Right. And and that's a perfect way to and, you know, go higher with it. But I'm, unfortunately, it's just become problematic. So, so I do have, I'm I glad do have a couple good. of recommendations for that, though, Teresa. Yeah. Go for so it. Go one for of the it. things that I recommend is that they'll get notified by the insurance company in some form or another. Now, the problem that I've seen in the offices is that they get busy. You know, they get distracted or they don't have a time set in the schedule that they actually check. And so just like you and me schedule, they have to schedule those tasks. I actually block off time to write. And so they need to block off time to check EFT insurance payments that hit the bank or the insurance websites. I, the second thing I, I, I want to be sure that I say is there is absolutely no point in backdating a payment that it hits the bank. I do not recommend that at all. Um, mm-hmm. And so they just need to put it in when they see it or when they get that information, put it into that day. So that's it's in the practice software that way. Credit cards don't hit the bank the day that they're put into the uh, practice software as a payment. And so the EFT insurance payments don't either. So there's no point in doing that. That's a really good point, actually. I, I you know, I, I read that in the book, but I keep forgetting to bring that up in my classes. And that's actually a really good point to is because the the girls or the, the men are just like freaking out, thinking they need to get this stuff reconciled to your point about getting busy. I think a lot of times if I don't have something physically in front of me, I I tend to forget about it. And I know I've come across many people who have left their EFT reconciliations aside because they forget. They don't have the stuff in front of them. They'll deposit the paper checks faster than the EFTs because it's just a physical reminder. Right. But if they set aside like Tuesday and Thursday, for instance, set aside Tuesday and Thursday, Mm -hmm that that's a routine that they do. They're always going to check the the insurance site and then check the bank to see if it hit. And then they can put it into the practice software or Monday, Wednesday, Friday, if they work Fridays or Friday, if the doctor's off and that's their business day. So there's right. lots of ways to make that work. But where I hear the complaining is the most is when they're overwhelmed to begin with. Now, the point that you made about having limited access 
So, you know, veteran office managers may be a little bit insulted by that because they're thinking, well, why can't he trust me with the bank account? And I know you'll have a thought, but my first thought is I don't want full access, like liability for me. I'd rather not have full access, limit my access. But what's the downside, the obvious downside to having full full access, Susan? You've seen it. Uh, embezzlement. <laughs> <laughs> With a capital E, right? Capital M-B-E. <laughs> yes. Embezzlement. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just, you know what? I tell office managers all the time, they need to cover themselves. You, you hit that nail right on that. Do everything they can to protect their liability or even just the implication that they're doing anything wrong. Now, if they are doing something wrong, I also tell them, you know, you'll get fined out. You know, you get discovered all the time. I mean, that's why I have cases on my desk of people that have been discovered embezzling. And so, but if you're not, then you don't want that implication to be there either. Uh, Because the doctors, just as much as we're talking to them, the doctors, I'm also speaking to the doctors. And so um, they're starting to watch their procedures and and systems and making sure everything's fine. But there's if if it's not really necessary, then they don't need to add one more thing to the, all the things that they have to do. Well, let me ask you: Do you think that that's that is the case that they are watching this stuff more than they used to? Well, I'm not going to tell them they're not. <laughs> <laughs> so the reason I ask that is because it, it, it seems to make sense that if you have, you know, you've got newer dentists coming in, owning the practices, you've got dashboards, you've got electronic banking, you know, 20 years ago, you'd have to reconcile the paper bank account and lots of doctors never did that anyways. And so a lot of stuff went, you know, by, I'm just, I'm curious and, and I should probably ask other consultants too. I'm wondering if it seems like dentists are more business savvy than they were before. Let me tell you the advent, the historical uh, rollout. I don't know the right word for it, but historically, doctors, I mean, you were here. You were in dentistry way back in the Stone Age, as I would call it, before. How dare before you? How dare you? <laughs> before, hey, that also implies I was too, so get over it. Um, but during the stone age before technology was so prevalent, I mean, there were actually dentists that said they were never going to do technology. And so they didn't want to, but now they've come along and, and they've decided they want to see technology. Some of them really have wrapped their arms around it and embraced technology and really maximize it. Some still are afraid of it. Don't understand how it works. And so I typically say 40 and above, which includes me, 40 and above. They may or may not embrace the technology, but I guarantee you 40 and below does. For sure. And so, and in that advent, the new dentist, I have a lot of them that call me and say, okay, I want to get this together and I want to figure this out. And so they're real on top of it. So do they usually, so when, when a doctor purchases a practice, like when do they call you to say, what the heck is going on? Is it the first year or does it take a little longer? If they inherit the staff, it's usually a two year mark. And so, okay. Can you explain that? Explain that a little bit. um, Yeah, it's a real trend. So they buy, they buy a practice with existing staff. Chances are somebody was stealing from the very beginning um, with the prior dentist. 
And so they waited a little bit and then they started stealing again with the new dentist. And then about the two year mark, the dentist, the new dentist is going, you know, he's kind of gotten over the shock of buying a practice, the shock of learning all the systems and procedures that were in, in place when he bought the practice. And then all of a sudden he's got two years under his belt, his or her belt, um, and is looking at the practice going, wait a minute, these numbers aren't matching. And then they find out that someone on the existing staff from the prior dentist has been stealing all along. It happens. And so it that's, I, get a, I get a lot of phone calls at that two-year mark. That is so, that's just so disappointing. And I mean, it just makes me so mad being an office manager that my colleagues out there are, are doing this stuff. I mean, it's just so maddening. We try so hard to get respectability and, you know, what we're doing with the, with the practices. And then you've got somebody who wants more Starbucks on the weekends, um, you know, stealing. It's It's not always, you know what? And it's not always the office manager. Sometimes it's, um, someone at the front desk or I've had a hygienist steal. I've had assistants steal. I've had spouses steal, by the way. I've also had CPA steal. I've also had bookkeepers steal. You know, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of everybody. Now the majority Mm -hmm. is office managers. So when you hear the statistic that three out of five practices are experiencing embezzlement to which I've started telling all the doctors when I speak with them, you know, if you own a practice for 30 years, I guarantee you, you stand a hundred percent chance of at least one person embezzling within that 30 years. Now, for sure, if they put the systems and procedures in place, they're going to catch it sooner, which is why I wrote the book. So we, you know, the, the ones that I'm seeing, my largest case was $1.1 million. And yet if he had wow. put three or four things into place, he wouldn't have had that heartache or that loss. And it is a heartache to them. I'll tell you, they take it very personally. They've, it's a betrayal. they've shared as they should. It's a betrayal. You know, it's yeah. almost worse than a spouse having an affair. They've shared yeah. a space with these people day in and day out and shared life with them. And they trusted them. And because they trusted them, they stole from them. It's it's opportunity. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that goes into it. But one of the one of the things with the fraud triangle or whatever they're calling it nowadays is is opportunity. And we as office managers, we get a bad rap, but it's really because of the of our opportunity for it. So, well, y- um, yes, but then it turns into brazen, Teresa. Sure. And it, it looks and goes into that, too, because this is where you and I just kind of go, oh, my God, can you believe it? So go on and talk about the brazen. Yeah, stuff. I mean, they're brazen. You know, opportunity might raise his head one or two times and, you know, it might steal something out of you know, petty cash boxes. So if anybody's listening and they still have the petty cash box, I'm going to hunt you down. And so <laughs> anyways, they might steal something, but, you know, but then they, because they got away with it and nobody saw them, then they just take that and run with it. And they become mm-hmm. brazen to where nothing alters them. It's, and this is how I say that they get a little bit of greed in their mouth and that taste of greed compels them. It is unrelenting greed that cannot be satiated. It is yeah. it is just a taste that you want more. Well, it's a feeling of being untouchable. Yeah. And 
you know, that, that you were able to do this once and oh, how silly they didn't see it. And by the way, I work overtime and he just went on vacation. So I am and yeah, I deserve this. How dare he not give me my time off? There's a lot of rationale that goes into it. Absolutely. So, I mean, I know the, one of the courses you teach is, is unrelenting greed. And I I just hate sometimes because you and I get scheduled at some of these same meetings, but we're always against each other. And I never get to see you talk like I want to. <laughs> and you did this at Star of the North. And uh, I mean, of course, huge, you know, feedback, great feedback on it, but I didn't get to watch it. Darn it. So greed is one of my favorite, favorite, um, uh, speaking, um, things. I just presentations. I just love it. It's a way to, it's a different way. Um, than mm-hmm. just getting up and lecturing. It's a completely yeah. different venue. I actually recorded, um, have seven letters recorded from uh, Leona, who is the queen of fraud. Yes, Leona Helmsley. Yeah. With the, uh, yeah. So I chose she that name because I didn't want anybody in the audience to have the name of the embezzler. <laughs> so I can explain it if I said this is why I chose the name of Leona. It's after Leona Hemsley. It's not anybody in particular. And what happens if Leona shows up in your I class? Don't know. Though I'm gonna just die and crawl into the nearest rock, I guess. But <laughs> but she's writing letters to Avarice, um, who is her novice embezzler, and telling her how to steal from a dental practice. And although humorous and written to be entertaining, they're also extremely enlightening. I I wrote the letters from my whole um, perspective of preparing evidence for uh, prosecution and embezzlement cases, and uh, they're they're a lot of fun. They're a lot of fun. So interesting. Well, so we'll have to keep an eye out for you know if you're coming in the area. Um, if you get a chance to listen to her, not only is she just funny when she gets rolling, oh, but my ethics it's, course it's really I really cool. like, I've gotten, I, I completely revamped all my speaking engagements this year. I mean, speaking presentations this year, and I have a five minute, a little over five minute animation that sets the tone for ethics. And that one has getting, uh, huge reviews, um, at the ADA in a shortened version, but, um, mm-hmm. yeah. So anyways, let, let's talk. Let's talk about ethics for a second, because um, as it pertains to insurance, and so just putting my insurance lens on, when I get questions in class, it's usually centered around what can I bill and what can I bill to make up for this bad fee schedule that I have, and is it okay if I do this? Oh. And you know, I typically have to step back and say, you know, hold on a second before you're asking me all these questions. Let me ask why you're asking, you know, why you're asking the questions, what's going on here. And I think a lot of times they don't even realize that they're teetering on that ethical, unethical edge. It, what do you, is that what you're seeing out there? Or do you see people go way past and just go straight to unethical? Um, well, it's kind of like what we were talking about a minute ago about the opportunity. So, you know, they, they teeter on that edge until they find out that nobody's saying anything about it. And then they do it again, and nobody says anything about it. But it's insurance for them, right? So when it goes back to ethics, let's, let's talk about ethics and insurance, because just looking at it from my point of view, in my classes, I get people all the time who come up and say, how do I 
make up for this low fee schedule? What can I bill to make up for this low fee schedule? Is it okay if I bill for this as well? And I don't think they realize just how far over the ethical line they've stepped. So do you, I mean, do you run into that? What do you, what do you say when someone asks you a question like, you know, how can I basically jip the system? Yeah, that's way over. Not only that, it's illegal, but um, <laughs> uh, not in which I want to say, not everything that's unethical is illegal. Having said that, yeah, I think if you didn't do the procedure, then you can't bill for it. So you can't, I mean, I'm always amazed at what I see that. And I do see a lot of that theft of service um, actually in changing insurance fraud in embezzlement cases. So so you see people changing oh, yeah. the, the check amounts and all yeah, of that. Yeah, they change That's the crazy. amounts and the fee schedule and will bill for whatever. <laughs> I'm just always surprised and going, why did you change that? Hmm. But it, that's really, I guess that's what I'm talking about. They, you know, the gist of it is that they're always coming to me and saying, you know, what can I do? And really the heart of it is you signed a fee schedule, right. like you signed a contract. If you don't like it, you have to get out of the contract. There's just, I can't sugarcoat that anymore. And I just imagine teaching ethics, like you must have had somebody who was, you know, trying to get around the system. I guess that's what I'm, I'm, I'm frustrated. I need you to act as my therapist and tell me it's going to be okay. <laughs> what I hear the most from the <laughs> office managers is my boss tells me to do this. Yeah. And that's the hard part. I can part see that. For sure. Because it's their boss. And so they have to make a decision though. As I say in the ethics course, your personal ethics is your choice. No one can ever make you do something. And so if you, if you don't want to cross the line, then don't cross the line and stand up for what's ethical. If you are afraid of losing your job, I get that. I get that. Mm -hmm. So then the alternative is stand up for what you believe in and find another job. I mean, I don't know what that means, but it's going to mean something yeah. different to every, every single person that's listening. Um yeah, I just I think you can't compromise, though. You can't, you know, you have to understand that that's that is going to come back right. at you some way. And that comes the back to that. Um, the thing that we talked about prior is protecting yourself. That's mm -hmm. that you're going to have to protect yourself. I would sure get something signed off on it saying the the boss or the dentist of the practice saying that they uh, required me to do this as part of my job. Well, and if they don't sign it, then that yeah, tells you right there. There you go. <laughs> There's a big issue. So, yeah, uh, I'm not looking for people to like quit their jobs, you know, right. or anything like that. But you do need to pay attention to what your liability is and, you know, whether or not you can sleep at night. So I, I think it's important. I know it's kind of a side conversation, but I just think it's so important. And we just don't talk about it enough, I think, as office managers. Let me let me go into one other thing in your book that just it just made me think because there's this question on employee benefits and you address it in the book. And I thought this was probably the most clear written description about it, but yet it's still going to be hard for people to stomach. And so let me just, let me just rephrase you write in the book, as far as being able to give employee benefits, like a lot of office manuals will say you get a thousand dollars in dental work. And so then employees, you know, get upset because maybe they don't have all the work that needs to be done. But Sally over here gets a lot of work done. Plus her kids get a lot of work done. I know you give this example. Um, but you said in the book, 
to talk about, to count supplies and that the doctor's labor, you, in your opinion, should not count towards that. Uh, can you explain that a little bit more? Well, labor is always a subjective cost, but supplies, lab costs, those are all tangible. And so if they want to give something away, because what I run across is that the doctor doesn't charge anything, you know, and so the nothing cost, and I don't agree with that. You know, I agree that they need to pay the hard costs of the lab and that the actual um, labor cost then is zeroed or adjusted, not zeroed. Hang on. Let me backtrack. You did not hear me say zero. <laughs> I, I, I shook my head a little bit. Yeah. I was like, what did she just say? <laughs> so, let me also say that recently I've been seeing a trend, a huge trend of zeroing out the cost in the fee schedule of the treatment for an employee's benefit. And I do not agree with that. You leave the cost in there and then you adjust the cost with an adjustment. The reason being it's an employee benefit. The employees need to know the amount of the benefit that they are receiving. If you zero it out, there's no psychological encouragement or benefit of seeing, hey, this is a part of my having this job. Um, this is a part of my wage, so to speak. This is a part of why I work here, because I get this done. And so that aside, then, having a set amount per employee is okay. But then, you know, like you said, what if I have perfect teeth, but Sally doesn't? And Sally, Sally has that $1,000 that she can have that goes towards lab. Then what do I get to do? And so. You know, sometimes it sets people up um, to be aggravated, feeling like they deserve more, which is not a good um, entitlement mindset to have. Mm -hmm. Now, what you just made me think, I was writing this down because what you just made me think about is that recording the cost of the benefits, too, is from a managerial point of view. Sometimes we give a lot of benefits that are actually costing us a lot. And so I, I ran across one office who just said all dental care for, for family and employees is free. Um, and they weren't actually tracking it at all. And we're talking, you know, implants, veneers, oh, yeah. whatever. And it gets really, really expensive. So I think just from an accounting point of view, you need to know what you're giving up in return for providing employee benefits. I'm not saying don't provide employee benefits. I, no, I think it's I'll great that you, you do I that. Had a, I had a dentist one time. Um, that said he was convinced somebody was stealing from the practice. And so I got in and looked at his books and everything and, and reorganized the adjustments list. Well, he gave away so much dentistry, but he had no idea what he was giving away because the treatment cost was zeroed. And so wow. I just, I implemented that one thing and said, all right, we're going to start putting adjustments in. And the doctor needs to see this. I mean, he adjusted and he had a huge, as most dentists do, a huge big heart, but he had no idea of what he was doing. And nobody was stealing. He was actually stealing from his own revenue by giving it away. Do you know what happened afterwards? Did he change his policy? Do you know what the outcome was? Um, well, he was much more aware. I'm not sure if he ever changed his ways. <laughs> but... <laughs> 
Well, you know, once you give a benefit, it's hard to take it back. That's really, that's tough. So yeah, it is, but he could, you know, and that's what we, we built some structure around, uh, tried to coach him a little bit on, you know, you can't save everybody kind of mentality. And sure. that was where he was at, you know, it helps to have a degree in psychology, like <laughs> 900% of the time. And so <laughs> That that I can't, I can't even imagine some of the conversations you have to have. Yeah, and it was a little bit um, embarrassing to him. Sure, I think for him to realize that nobody was really he was really quick to blame somebody else, mm-hmm. but didn't really see it was him. And I well, think that was my opener. Well, and he, and dentists are you said it. Dentists are honestly some of the most giving people. That I've ever worked with, you know, a lot of times, I mean, they over deliver benefits. They just are so good with giving time off and their understanding and all of that. Um, And if you're driving and listening to this and you're thinking, wait, they are, I'm not working for one of those. Then you're in the wrong wrong office because there's actually a lot of really good dentists out there. Um, But but you're right, though, it does lend itself to some really bad uh, decision-making, um, on that end. So that's, uh, that's so sad. It makes me sad. I think of some of the more kind, uh, clients that I've had in the past and, and how they've been taken advantage of. So, oh, so yeah. the biggest case you had was 1.2 million. 1.1. As if 0.1 matters. But, <laughs> no, but you've heard, we've heard point, of bigger but... though, right? Like is, hasn't there been bigger in the industry? Yeah, 200, 200 uh, oh, no, I'm sorry, 2 point something million in uh, Georgia, 1.9 in Washington. Jeez. And then, then mine, 1.1. 1. 1. Yeah. Wow. It's crazy. Yeah. So it's very disheartening. So when you have dentists who are coming in, taking your class, do they just walk in like thinking, okay, this isn't going to happen to me, or I'm just taking this because I was, you know, I was told to take it or whatever. And then, you know, do they come in? I guess what I'm asking is, do you have people who take your class that suspect it? Or do you have people that come in thinking, nah, this isn't happening to me, but I should just take this class? So about seven years ago, putting cards on the chairs of the people that were taking my course. And on the back of the card, it asked, have you ever experienced an embezzlement and blah, blah, blah. Just some real pointed questions. I started collecting all that information. And about 75 to 80% of the people that attend my presentation have already experienced embezzlement. And so I make a really big deal during the presentation to say, do you see all these empty chairs? They don't know they're being embezzled yet, but they should be here. Sadly, sadly, very sadly, it's not typically the ones that need to hear it to prevent it. They don't think they need that information because nobody they trust is stealing. That's the hard part. One of the uh, ways to steal, and I don't want to give this like a, a, a roadmap on how to steal, but from a manager's point of view, one of the ways, one of the things we need to look out for is time theft. Do you talk about that in your classes at all? Yeah, and it's in the book. Um, so I... I believe in automated time clocks. Most of the practice software has it. If you don't aren't utilizing it in the practice software or you have a practice software that doesn't have a time clock, then there's lots of Windows-based or Mac-based uh, software programs that you can install uh, to put track the time. I believe that the admin password should be held by, don't throw any eggs, um, should be held by the doctor. 
And the reason for that is what I've seen are the ones that don't want to use the time clock or the ones that are hearing, you know what? I can't get Sally to clock in. She never clocks in. I don't want her to clock. I mean, I don't want to use the time. Well, sometimes people do that to get their way, right? So, and and, and then some people are like bully other people to change the time clock and, right. and clock in and out. And them. so only the doctor, I believe, should have the access to change the time clock, but in the book. And as a result, you mentioned earlier about the hidden page. I have so many, everything I talk about in the book, that's a spreadsheet or, or whatever. I actually provide the Excel spreadsheets for those, but I created a card that when an employee doesn't clock in or out, that they have to sign the card. They have to say what they did and they have to say why. And that card then has to be signed by the doctor. The doctor uses that to change the time and that card goes into the employee file. And so I found that a lot of times when they have to give something to the doctor, this is why I think the doctor has to be the admin and or or maybe the office manager then is the one that does the change, but the doctor still has to get the card. So the employee has to give the card to the doctor. I found that when they have to do that and they have to present it and they have to write it down, that it becomes less over time that they forget. Forgetting is just a bad habit. It, it's it's just accountability, yep. right? That doesn't go down to accountability. Yep. So as a manager, if you're listening to this, if you have somebody who's just keeps messing around with their time card, keeps clocking in late and you keep having to fix it, that really is, uh, that's on you to fix that behavior because it's not normal behavior. No, it's, it's not. If you go to corporate America, like my husband, they just talked about how his job is now going to get this app where he logs in when he gets to the office. It's location-based there. And this is very common. You walk into the area and you you clock in, but it's also GPS-based, so they know that you're actually there. And then they see whether or not you wandered off. And I know there's a couple HR companies that have services like that, even for dental. And it sounds big brother-ish, doesn't it? But I guess... I guess that's the way to make sure that things are are kosher. Well, and it's sad that that behavior has shown that they need it. That's the part that's sad. That's true. Yeah, that's true. So I don't know if you can hear it, but it sounds like I'm getting a thunderstorm here. Um, uh, you're getting the one that we've know. had. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm telling you, it's it's. it's and my poor son was going to just. Mo- Would you? I say? sent it your way. Yeah, I saw your. Uh, <laughs> I saw your yard. What a mess. Holy yeah, cow. Blood, big time. <laughs> oh, geez. Well, and, and my poor son was going to mow the lawn just now. And I'm glad we made the decision to not have him mow the lawn because he would be a drowned rat right now. So let's talk about, let's do a kind of a, a shift. So, so before we leave the money in money out thing, and I already decided you're coming back on again, whether you want to or not, because we have to talk more about this money stuff because I just I love money, cash flow, all that kind of stuff, and so do you. So we can geek out together on it. So we'll definitely do that. Um, but you have, and and then the ethics thing. I know that you really are are talking about that more and more. So I do hope that you all go to the website, um, to the blog, and check out what she has to say about it. But but one thing I wanted to bring up is you have this book. Well, first of all, how many books do you have now? I mean, cr- come on. 41. Oh my gosh. Like overachiever. Can you say overachiever? Uh, it's so, the main reason I'm tired. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
I totally understand. I've got one and I'm like, oh man, 41, like that one almost killed me. So I, my hat's off to you. Uh, but you went in a, a different direction and I've heard feedback from managers and ADOM members too, because you had it at, at the ADOM booth one year or at, yeah. at your booth at ADOM. I don't year. have it this it's year a, too. Okay, good. So you, people can find it and it's on Amazon and on your site yes. too. But it's a book called Matters of the Heart. And what it is about is caregiving and elder care because you, and, and when I met you, you were going through this. Yeah. Um, you were, you were a caregiver to your elderly parents. When I met you, it was, it was just your mom, I believe, no, right? Was, dad was still here when I met you. It was dad. Okay. So you, you were, but you had taken care of, of both of them and your dad was, you know, uh, you needed to be home a lot. You needed to take care of them. And, and I want to hear that story. It just brought it. It was personal to me because my grandmother had dementia and we took care of her. She lived at home. My mom, I saw the toll it took on her. So when you wrote this book, I was like, wow, I, I didn't even think to get a book for my mom when she was going through it. And I just kind of felt bad because maybe I could have supported her more. So tell me the backstory of this book about really just self-care and taking care of the family when you got this situation. Well, I actually, I was um, in corporate life in California when dad had his first heart attack, really spent a lot of time praying about it. And through a lot, of, you can read the story in the book about something that happened. And I decided it was better for me to move home. No one at the time, none of my siblings and single female, no kids, it was really easy for me to transport halfway across the country back to Texas. So I decided I needed to, I took a look at the market and liked uh, computers. That's the way my brain works, sadly. And so finally, something the way my brain works is what I said when I entered the market. And so <laughs> I started this business uh, 21 and a half years now. Uh, go to take care of my parents, to allow me the flexibility to take them to the hospital if I need appointments. We arranged one day a week to do all their gin and around. And I decided at the time when I moved back, we built a house. Um, I am actually fourth generation, no, third generation caregiver. And so we built a house in the back that we took care of my grandmother. And so I lived out there and ran my business and spent the rest of the time helping mom and dad. But the book was my labor of love. I wrote the book that I wish I would have had because when I started taking care of my parents for those 16 very long years, there was nothing, mm -hmm. nothing out there. And I actually didn't just have my parents, but I also had my step-grandmother who lived uh, 20 minutes away. And so oh, I had wow. three of them. And uh, the differences between the two is that two were easy and one was not. <laughs> my parents were pretty easy compared to my step-grandmother. And so <laughs> she was not easy. I learned a lot, though. But the book I just wrote, I actually uh, took upon some things that have happened with other friends' uh, parents and expanded on those. And mom had dementia, but she didn't have Alzheimer's. But I wrote about Alzheimer's a lot just because that seems to be something that's happening so much more now. Sure. But just the basics, you know, that the really basic thing that I wanted to do is the only thing that we really missed the boat on as a family was not communicating. And that's on me. I should have communicated more. 
What do you well, mean I by should that? Have commun- communicated more with my, um, on a weekly basis, you know, especially towards the end. My dad was 94. Okay. Yesterday was his birthday, Teresa. I don't know if you saw that. He would have been a hundred. He would have been 107 years old yesterday. I know. Oh, wow. I was wow. really, really, I mean, he was really old when he had me. That's the way to say that. <laughs> anyways. <laughs> yeah, but um, anyways, it just, it was a very interesting and a very different time of life. And I'm, you know, it was hard. Oh, my gosh. There were days that I wanted to bash my head into the nearest wall. Um, and the frustrations and the heartache of not knowing what to do. The thing is, is that old age, yeah. there's no cure. There is no cure. We will all either die or get old, one or the other. Yeah. And how we right. handle that is, right. is well, different. And so not only the emotional piece of it, you know, making sure that you're not stressing yourself out and all of that. I mean, it's exhausting, but also the financial no. stress, uh, not just, I, I'm not even talking about like the cost of providing that care. That's its own ball of wax. But if your family isn't communicating about what the wishes are and then wills and fine, and you know, how, how are we going to handle the estate? That's when, when the family member passes, you're already in such an emotional state. And then you've got stress well, that builds take up this on out of the headlines. You know, Gladys Knight, what did they find? Three wills now. One was in a couch and it was handwritten. So there was no formal will. Oh, and that's that's the thing I tell everybody my age, even. I mean, you know, the beer truck could hit us on the way home and we don't have a will. Really? Is it updated? And communicate the wishes. I actually yeah. have uh, even my funeral plans and have made those desires uh, known. To which, you know, Freebird from Leonard Skinner will be the last song playing at my funeral. So. <laughs> oh, that's great. I love I that. Heard. It is my <laughs> favorite, favorite song. Band. Anyway. It, um, <laughs> but just communicating with the family what you want and what your will says. I have an annual meeting with my nephew and niece um, every July and say, here's here's the mm-hmm. state of my affairs here is my accounts. Here is what I owe. Here is what I have. And, um, and I tell them up front. So if something happens to me, then they're not surprised and they know where everything is. And I mean, I'm also not conveying that information, um, to my kids. You know, I think that that should happen when you're over 60 period. Well, not even, I mean, just, I think even when you have a kid too, I mean, you've got to designate, we've had a will since Noah was born, really, because we were like, oh, my gosh, what happens? You know, do we have grandparents going to war right. over each other? Do we have, you know, what about the college fund, the, the very small at that time college fund and, and all of that? So it's for those of you who are, who are younger, because significantly younger than us, um, you may not necessarily have to worry about this stuff. But I think it's better to be prepared. But if you're not yeah, worried absolutely. about it for yourself, your parents, this is something you're going to be going through with your parents. And that's, that's really the tough part. Let, let's veer away from the caregiver thing, but it's related. So again, the, the book is matters of the heart. And if you know someone who's going through this or you, you are going through this, it's an amazing read. I can't tell you how many people, um, you know, have told me that it's helped them out and you got really good feedback from people, you know, hugging you and no, telling you that we they had this conversation the last so. time, Teresa, that, 
as a speaker and an author, mm-hmm. we never know a lot of the times. We very rarely know, let me put it that way, the effect we have on people because we're both agents of change. We do what we do to make a difference in people's lives. And and that's this is just straight from the heart. And so we don't always hear. And so the people that ate on that came up to me this year or last year, I guess now, um, and gave me hugs with tears in their eyes and thanked me and said they were hoping I was going to be at the meeting because they wanted to tell me how much the book helped them. I that's why I wrote it. That's that's exactly why I wrote it. We don't get feedback. I mean, sometimes. Well, I, I shouldn't say that we we get feedback, but it's not down the road. People are really quick to criticize and not very, not very quick to compliment. Yeah, definitely. That's, uh, yeah, that's a whole different topic, right? We can get into that. Once people get used to you and I talking and they realize that, you know, we're not always this professional, we probably get down into it. So Um, (laughs) so let's talk about the, the, the caregiving thing, but not really as it pertains to dentistry. I am shocked by how many offices do not have succession plans in place for right. if their doctor has an injury, disability, whatever. And even the manager, if she's he or she is such a key player that it would really harm the practice for them not to be there, there should be a succession plan in place. Is that something you see or, or what do you think about that whole concept for a practice? I, I see it all the time. You know, I, I, um, you see no, not, you see no, a, in no, a succession plan or no, no succession. no succession plan. Okay. I've had, um, I've had several doctors pass away sure. that I've worked with. And it amazes me how, because I'd worked with them, how easy that was for them to know the cost of doing dentistry because their QuickBooks had been organized and cleaned up. And so they completely understood it, that they were following systems and procedures that they could quickly oversee and pull the reports together as needed. But then I've had others that died who fought me tooth and nail and didn't want to put these things into place and said they didn't really need them. And they weren't always doing things um, legally, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, reporting taxes and things. Then they left a mess for their spouse. Wow. Oh my gosh, what a mess. Oh, wow. The best succession plan that you can leave is having your, your financial information organized now because we don't know we don't know so when you say organized are you talking about like just have all of the account numbers in one place or the holdings well that or... helps <laughs> that's oh, sorry. Start. that's <laughs> a start <laughs> um, you know having all the financial bank accounts the credit cards and you know even care credit and the the merchant card services accounts and passwords organized but having their QuickBooks organized in such a way and, and having making sure they've optimized their practice software because there's two software in the practice. Either the, the CPA uses one or the, the doctor uses QuickBooks. And then there's the practice software. And so having all of that organized, then, then when things happen, because they will or they'll retire or they're ready to sell the practice, then they're prepared. But not having it organized 
is wretched. And what a wretched legacy to leave to a spouse that's already grieving from a loss. Yes. That's a bad thing. And and then also this spouse, honestly, if, if it was left kind of unorganized at that point, you know, this the spouse is probably thinking, oh my gosh, what where's the money? Do I actually have any money? Is there right. retirement? Where's the will and all that kind of stuff? Um and and what is really sad to me is I've seen so many practices get sold for much, much less than they were worth because there was no system in place and the the spouse was in such a financial mess that he or she needed the cash. And so the the practice was sold, you know, honestly much less and it would have, you know, probably caused the doctor to roll over in his or her grave because of, you know, you work so hard and, and it's for your family and you can't even get your money's worth. So that's that's really sad. So I, I hope that if you're listening, bring it to your doctor's attention. Or if you're a doctor, you know, sit down. It's not morbid. I, I think it's good business. Well, I think being prepared is just smart business. You know, only a fool thinks nothing's going to happen to them. Yeah. You know, look at look at every, everybody scrambling in Missouri and Oklahoma right now because they got hit by tornadoes or floods. Oh, it's they never thought that was going to happen to them. Yeah. You know, I never thought the tornado was going to go through my hotel room at the Henman. <laughs> and so you just, you don't anticipate things like that happening. But when they do, you know, if you're ready and you've got for it, it's still going to be shocking and it's still going to leave a trail of grief behind. But being prepared, that's a good start. You know, yeah. they're not leaving a mess on top of the grief. And managers, we need to know what, what do we do in that situation? I had a right. friend who's... Uh, boss was actually hit, struck by a, uh, he was riding a motorcycle, struck by a car. And, you know, she went, said goodbye to him on Friday and got the phone call Saturday. And they did not know how much cash was actually available to keep her around because what really needed to happen was she could organize the practice being sold and just cleaning things up. But the the spouse said, listen, I don't even know if I have enough money to pay you. And it's unreasonable to ask somebody to work for free. She she's a single mom. She needed money too. It's just, it's a sad situation all along. At least you would know, look, if you, something happens to me, you know, speaking as a doctor, then you Sally have, you know, I've got at least a month that I can make sure that you are taken care of because they're Sally's unfortunately Sally's got to go find another job and that's not easy to do. Yeah, no kidding. Well, let's take that one step further. I just wrote about this on my blog on the crisis management. You know, what if a tornado hit your practice? And so what do you do? What if a hurricane hits your practice? So many people last year was two years ago now um, had to go through that. And what do they do? And so having these plans, whatever it is, um, having the plans ready and everybody knows the plan, the contingencies of, you know, it's emergency preparedness. Yeah. And that's what I wrote the blog on this last week. So that's excellent. No, and I'll, I'll link, I'll link the blog in the show notes too. And you know, how, how people can find you. Uh, so Susan, we're going to wrap this up cause it's, it's been a little bit and I know I have to save some more because you, you are definitely coming back on here. And quite frankly, you and I don't spend enough time together. So I'm 
need to have my Susan time. So I don't know <laughs> if the listeners can hear it, but there's a lot of mutual respect and love between the two of us because we she's she's just one of those people in the industry who when she's open with you she's really open with you and it is just amazing to see the heart that you have on you Susan so not to kiss your butt or anything like that but that's really that's really how I feel about you so thank you you for clarifying that it wasn't just kissing your kissing my butt (laughs) yeah because you know if you said, yeah. if I said any more, Susan, you would be like, what are you on? Are you it's on? Usually, it's usually said, what you see is what you get with me. All. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I urge you all check out her book, check out her blog. And if she's coming to a town near you, then you, you need to make plans um, to I'll see her. Hey, I'll be at Adam and I'll have a table. You will be at yeah. Adam, which is the yeah. American Association of Dental Office Management. It's in July. Um, you will have a table. I think you're speaking to the spouses too. I am. The, the dental, dental spouses. spouses. Yep. Yeah. And if you're a dentist or a dental spouse, uh, you know, and I don't mean to exclude managers, but I think any good manager would understand where I'm coming from. If you're a dentist or a dental spouse, you know, there's a there's a different set of management rules that you also need to know. And you should get in touch with somebody like Susan who has seen the fraud side of it, the dirty side of dentistry and, you know, get your pants scared off a little bit because that's going to make you open up and open your eyes and really take a good look at what's going on. So don't you love that, that I'm scaring people into coming to see you? <laughs> hey, I'm doing the unrelenting greed for the spouses too. Well, that they need to hear it. So yeah. they'll, they'll love it. They'll absolutely love it. So any last parting words, Miss Susan Gunn? Nope. I, <laughs> I think I've expounded on everything in my brain at the moment. All right. So my last parting words to you is hands off my man, ma'am. So <laughs> just tell Norman to call me. <laughs> we'll message you, I'm sure. Uh, so all right. It's so a un- pleasure, Teresa. Kudos back to you because yeah. you offer uh, the practices so much knowledge, and you know, I, I I've always said that we make a pretty good team. So we do. You know, we there's do. a lot of respect flowing both ways. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, and we'll have you back on because I just got more, I get more to ask you, but until the next episode of nobody told me that I hope that you tell your friends. I hope that you let people know that you enjoyed this podcast. Leave me a review. If you feel the urge to, I would appreciate it. And uh, we'll see you on the, or we'll talk to you on the next episode. Subscribe to this podcast. So you'll get our next candid discussion. Visit Teresa's website, odysseymgmt.com. That's odysseymgmt.com for more information on Teresa's courses, books, and speaking schedule. Subscribe to her newsletter while you're there. Don't say we didn't tell you that.